Hello and welcome to the American Cinema Foundation Movie Podcast. I am your host Titus and today I'm joined again by Terry Teachout for our noir and neo-noir and noir adjacent series. After having talked about The Great Chinatown, today we turn to LA Confidential. This is our first James Ellery conversation. On the podcast we've also covered on another occasion The Black Dahlia. We are back to stories about the origins of LA or the old times, the splendor, the corruption and what it's like for men to have to deal with this and what it is that women go through in this world. This is very topical. I was going to say for us, this is also the newest film that we've ever talked about. It came out in 1997 at a time when the idea of the neo-noir film was sort of, we weren't seeing that many of them. They weren't getting much talked about. Neo-noir had really been a phenomenon of the 70s. And L.I. Confidential came as a tremendous surprise to me when it came out. I wasn't expecting a film of that quality. Enough so that I felt suspicious of it, I have to admit to you. I kept telling myself, well, you know, it's no Chinatown. And of course, it's not Chinatown. It's something entirely different. And I realized in the ensuing years, and this film has been out now for quite a while, that it has staying power. And ultimately, as with all the other arts, the test of posterity is the test that matters. And it's a movie where incredible talent in front and behind of the camera comes together as a complete surprise. Nobody saw this coming. And we're not sure what to make of it. It's a James Elroy story, and it's about brutality and about grace or looking for redemption. It's also a true ensemble film. The big surprise with L.A. Confidential was that somebody wanted to make this kind of neo-noir period piece film in 1997. But no less surprising was the fact that none of the actors in this film was a real above-the-title star. If I remember correctly, Kim Basinger actually got top billing, which she doesn't merit in the film. She gives a good performance, but that's not the lead role. Of the four principal actors in the film, the best-known one was Kevin Spacey who, again, was a character actor who had done some striking things. But nevertheless, one just didn't think of him as a star. Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce. I mean, who were these people? And, of course, the answer is they were extraordinarily accomplished actors who were performing in a wonderfully well-written and directed film. It was a perfect vehicle for them. It made them. Yes, you're very much right. It's remarkable to think about the fact that they were really at the beginning of Celebrity and they put in a performance that nobody had the chance to do again because nobody ever could do an ensemble cast in this way once everybody's famous. Right. And perhaps it was for the to the advantage of the film that no one act was at the time so famous that they jumped out of the frame at you. You saw them all as the people they were playing more than anything else. Even Spacey, whose character type really was established firmly with this film as the self-hating, self-doubting principle. Everything came into focus for all of them right then. Yeah. And we owe it to Curtis Hansen, who was nominated three times uh, for producing, writing and directing and won the writing award. And I think that actually this is deserved, that it is primarily a written movie in the sense that you have to put all of these different roles together. None of the actors were nominated except Kim Basinger. And there needs to be more recognition, of course, for Dante Spinotti's cinematography, just as there is for Jerry Goldsmith's score. But I feel that the Academy got it right. It's primarily about writing here. And editing. And I don't mean film editing. I mean script editing. 
this movie was adapted from a big, sprawling, messy novel. James Elroy, I don't particularly like Elroy as a writer. In L.A. Confidential, what he gave us was a situation, these indelible characters. And Curtis Hansen sat down and said, all right, how do I carve a well-made movie out of this big, messy novel? And you could teach a course about how he did it. The simple answer, though, is that he cut away everything superfluous to the unfolding action and allowed the characterizations to emerge through acting, through dialogue. And he did it with tremendous discipline so that this film moves from beginning to end, really in a rather old-fashioned way. It stays right on the narrative line, doesn't deviate from it, moves with increasing speed, and the end is an explosion followed by a coda. That is good old-fashioned noir filmmaking. And it couldn't have been done without a script written in so disciplined a way that a lesser director could have shot it effectively. I think that that's true, though this is a fabulously well-directed film. You're right. There is something to trying to establish Los Angeles 1953, trying to make that city come alive when we all now know how modern it is and how glamorous and all that. What was it like when you had these TV actors host a little event fundraiser for the DA? What was it like when the police precincts felt small and the crimes they dealt with felt small and their behavior was petty too? And at the same time, how can you have a story where you have so much talent and there's nobody who acts as a protagonist? You get the weight of anonymity. These are not important people. Our lead detectives are all of them marred. Russell Crowe perfects his role as the American stoic. He is a tough guy who knows he is despised for his brutality and he doesn't know what to do about that. He at least knows that he is brutal because he is moral, but morality is something to laugh at in this corrupt situation. Guy Pierce plays the college boy and he gradually unfolds all this intelligence and in the process we lose all respect for him because he seems to be the pettiest, most manipulative character. And then there's Kevin Spacey who seems to be the most corrupt because he is fully complacent in it. He just sells arrests for headlines in the tabloids. This is not a hero situation. This is not grandeur. And yet it's very much a noir situation because these are people who are seeking a way out. They have, in their various ways, accepted their flaws, accepted their corruption. But they want to get out of it. And interestingly, the quintessential noir situation in which they are led into this corruption by a woman is reversed. They're led out of it by her. They're already there when the action of the film starts. When we talked about Chinatown, we spoke about how Jack Nicholson's acting style, which at that time seemed and was so contemporary, was skillfully placed against the design and approach of the movie, which was not nostalgic in any conventional sense. But you did feel this neo aspect of it, that we were looking back at the style of an earlier time. L.A. Confidential feels like a film shot now about then. Nothing notably contemporary about the acting styles, but they're also not anachronistic. But above all, there is no sense of nostalgia, even a perverted nostalgia. The, the cinematography is clean and bright. We're not putting any filters over the camera to make you feel like you're looking back into the past. It is as though we had stepped in the time machine and been sent back to this moment in history and that we were living it right then. 
And I think that may have something to do with the success of the movie. Because nostalgia movies are for older people, by definition, or for the kind of person who feels nostalgia for a time that he never knew. L.A. Confidential is strikingly non-anachronistic. You buy that you're back there, but you feel that you are back there and that it's in the present moment that you are back there. I think this has a lot to do with the way we receive the film today. It seems it is correct. This is a period about which I know a lot. And I'm quite struck by the accuracy of the detail. You mentioned the reception where you have a jazz group playing in the background. Well, that jazz group is the Jerry Mulligan Quartet. And anybody who knows who those four men look like knows that they have been cast. They're not shot up close. They don't have any lines. But they look right. They look like the people who played in that group. And on the soundtrack, of course, we're hearing a recording by the group. Almost without exception, tremendous care has been taken to place the details of this film. Not long ago on Twitter, well, I wrote a post on my blog and linked it to Twitter, which is how everybody saw this. There is a dive bar on Hollywood Boulevard called The Frolic Room, which has been in continuous operation since 1934. And I mentioned it because it contains a mural by Al Hirschfeld of Hollywood. But this is used as one of the locations for the film. It is next door to the Pantage, the old movie theater on Hollywood Boulevard. A scene takes place both inside and outside this bar. It's Kevin Spacey, where he suddenly realizes that he has a chance to pull out. He can change his life. The use of this bar, it just everything is photographed perfectly. It helps that it doesn't need restoration. The neon sign out front is exactly the way that looked decades and decades ago. And yet you feel that you're there now watching a scene that's happening now. It's just that now is 1953. That is a tremendous illusion, one that is the combination of cinematography, design, and ultimately conception. The clarity with which Curtis Hand said, this is the kind of movie I want to make. And then you put the actor into it. And if he's an actor as good as Kevin Spacey was back then, he feeds off the surrounding. It energizes his performance. It gives it specificity. And it's just a little scene. I mean, it's key to the unfolding of the plot, but it's not one of the big scenes in the film. And yet, like every other scene in the film, you watch it and you say, this is right. I'm there. I know what I'm seeing and I know why I'm seeing it. And the more you know about the period, the richer it becomes. But you needn't know anything about the period because the film, it's convincing in its own right. You feel watching it, no matter what you know or don't know, that you're seeing something happen that is believable. It's not created by the use of computer-generated imagery. It's not deliberately anachronistic. You just feel correct. This is one of the aspects of, you might call it, historical filmmaking. It is the power of film to act as a time machine, if that's the way you want to use it. In films as dissimilar as this and, say, Mike Lee's Topsy Turvy, there is something extraordinary about how a really well-designed, well-shot film can make you feel as though you have entered the past. It's because film is, at bottom, a naturalistic medium. It is a realistic medium. It's not like the stage, where everything is illusion, where you know when somebody walks out on the stage that he's playing somebody, that the stage is not where he is. Film requires naturalism. Any film that sets foot outside the boundaries of naturalism is taking a very big chance. And L.A. Confidential does it with total mastery. I just reviewed it again a week or so ago, not having looked at it for a long time. And at first, I was fascinated by all of these things, but very quickly, I got swept up in the act of seeing the film. 
And that is the goal of this kind of realism, this kind of naturalism, to involve you so completely that you never get pulled outside the frame, that it's just you watching the movie, feeling that everything in it is right and that it could have happened, and that if it had happened, it would have looked and sounded just like this. Yes, that's a very good point. You're swept into this movie. These people, all of them, they do their jobs just right. And the job immediately becomes invisible. You're just part of it now. And that's absolutely essential to get us to take these characters seriously, to see them in their situation and to believe that this is how people live them. And these are the challenges that these men have to deal with. Before you can have a plot, you have to have a situation that you're interested in. And the work the movie does is at first to show you that it's a pretty depressive world to be part of, but people like Russell Crowe and Guy Pearce are just there. They don't know that there's another world. They're not interested. They're in the dark side of Hollywood, the part that has no glamour, and they can't think of anything else. This is absolutely essential characterization for us to take their story seriously. This is not about the stars. This is not about the glorious future of Hollywood or something like that. It's about these two men, one of them blue color, one of them white color, one of them tough, one of them smart and college educated, and how it is that they're going to deal with corruption, which of course is a perennial problem. Right, and how they're going to save their souls. We said this a moment ago, but it really needs to be dwelled on, I think. In the classic film noir, a person who is probably not at that moment yet corrupt, he's susceptible. You know, the saying, if a con man can take you, you're already there. But in a film noir, a guy like Dick Powell in Pitfall, he's just a regular guy who suddenly finds himself presented with the choice between good and evil. And he makes the wrong choice. And the film watches as this decision works itself out. In L.A. Confidential, the principal characters are already in the corrupt world. They have, in a sense, already made the choice. They didn't even know they were making it. When they became cops, they were becoming cops in a corrupt police system. They're there. That's what they do. They accept it. And then, for a variety of complex reasons, but reasons that all stem from the entry into the action of Lynn Bracken, the prostitute who is herself dissatisfied with this world. They're pulled out of the world. They're made aware of the fact, not only that the world is corrupt, which of course they know, but that there is an alternative to it, that they don't have to live like this. They may well have to give their lives, as Bud White and Ed Exley know at the very end of the film, when they acknowledge that the only way for them to do right may be to take actions that lead directly to their death. But they're willing to do it because they've been shown that you can't live like that and live with yourself. Kevin Spacey's character, of course, exits the film about two-thirds of the way through because he doesn't understand that he's making that kind of choice. But what he does understand is that he's willing to throw away the good life that he's managed to get. He's a corrupt cop. He has a very satisfying secondary career as a technical advisor on Badge of Honor, a TV show like Dragnet. He takes his bribes, he has his fancy suits, but he is himself aware that something's wrong here. My reading of his character, by the way, perhaps this is a good moment to go into it. The way the plot develops, of course, is that Jack Vincennes, that's the name of the character, is a kind of informant for a magazine called Hush Hush, the equivalent of Confidential, the real-life magazine from the 50s. He is used to set up people, Hollywood stars, low-level stars usually, 
are exposed as people who use drugs, people who are homosexual. And the editor of Hush Hush, played by Danny DeVito, is going to use him to set up the district attorney, Ellis Lowe, who is a closeted homosexual. To do this, to get the goods on him, they decide to photograph Lowe in a compromising situation with a bisexual movie star who was previously being exposed by Hush Hush. In one scene, the scene at the uh, fundraiser, we see Jack Vincennes and this unfortunate young man together talking. And the young man doesn't have any idea that Jack Vincennes is, from his point of view, one of the bad guys, one of the people who's fixed him. He assumes that Vincennes is like him. And in a performance of the greatest subtlety, Kevin Spacey makes clear to us that that is true, that Jack Vincennes is not just corrupt, but I suspect homosexual as well. That's one of the great subtleties of this film, uh, Spacey's performance. It's a self-hating performance. And that's a very, very hard thing for a well-known actor to pull off. But he was not afraid to do it. Back then, of course, there weren't rumors about Spacey because we didn't know who he was. But within a couple of years of the release of this film, the fact that Spacey was himself homosexual became a big item on the rumor market. He's using it in this film to portray that character. That's real acting acting that pulls experience out of yourself, brings it into the film situation, makes it completely convincing. And while there's no suggestion in the film that Jack Vincennes wants to change his sexual identity, what he does want to do is to stop being corrupt, to start being honest with himself, with the world. And who knows where he might end up farther down the line if he pursues the path of honesty. But of course, he's stopped by the fact that the totally corrupt villain of the film, Dudley Smith, played by James Cromwell, the police captain, is going to kill him to stop him from revealing what he knows. To give a performance where you get killed about two-thirds of the way through the film and you still make a tremendous impression that you're really, in some ways, the carryaway of the film, the character everybody remembers, that's real acting. And say what you will about Kevin Spacey. In this performance, it gives acting of the highest possible quality in a truly complex role. I think you're right. And this speaks to the protagonists, all of them, since... Russell Crowe has always had to struggle with the fact that people just see him as a tough guy. Right. His reputation beating reporters up and what have you, of course, does not help. Obviously, he has a temper and he brought that to the movie. The sense that, in a way, he's humiliated because he's not smart enough. Just like Guy Pearce had to deal with his arrogant, boyish look and the sense that he's just an upstart. How dare he walk across the screen from these established people, great character actors like James Cromwell or Kevin Spacey already had an Oscar in the bag for The Usual Suspects. No, these are real actors giving real performances, but their characters are all seeking the same thing. They're seeking redemption. It's as though this film were a sequel to a film noir that had already taken place in which all three of these people variously start down the road of corruption. This is where they end up. They're not able to extricate themselves from this role. They don't get killed by the pretty lady. They survive, but they survive as people who have failed to get away from themselves, to get away from the world that they're in. They're trapped. They're taking bribes. Ed Exley would like to get out of this world but he doesn't know how. It's the only thing he knows. His father was killed as a result of being a cop. But White, I, I don't think that Russell Crowe's character particularly wants to be made innocent again. What he wants is to be taken seriously as a policeman, as somebody who can do his job well, who isn't just muscle, 
who isn't somebody you send in to scare somebody else. He wants to be redeemed that way. And Jack Vincennes obviously wants to dig himself out of the total corruption of his situation. But the only way for them to do it is to go up against a totally corrupt ethos of the police department at that time, where their boss has decided that he wants to take over the rackets in Los Angeles. That is the quintessential Raymond Chandler corrupt Los Angeles situation, raised to an extremely high and explicit power. And I think it has to be, you know, we've seen this plot before, we've seen it a lot. So how do you make it fresh? You make it fresh by pitting these three guys against the whole world that they live in and ask, what can they do to be different? And of course, at the end of the film, what happens is one of them's dead. And Ed Exley has been promoted within that world and has decided that he's going to use his political skills as a police officer to try to ameliorate the situation. God only knows what happens to him after that. Bud White is removing himself from the situation totally. He goes off with a girl. Uh, They're off to Arizona, someplace far from Los Angeles. He has decided that for him, happiness and honesty, morality cannot be found within the context that he was looking for. Yeah, and that makes sense. Bud White is an intensely moral man. He cannot stand the evil in which he lives, in which he grew up as a child. For him, primarily, justice is experienced as the injustice of seeing women bitten. The fact that men are stronger and they will do violence with impunity. They do not even fear enough to control themselves. And this is liable to drive him mad. That's what drives him morally and why he is indeed in need of redemption of some kind. He Mm. needs to know that it's worthwhile being human. That it is not just one act of wanton violence after another from when he was a child and he saw it done to his mother by his father all the way to the grave. But at the same time you see that a certain acquaintance with corruption is necessary in order to deal with it. You have to have a certain capacity for cruelty and a certain experience of suffering in order to be Bud White. Just like you have to have a certain capacity for lies, for the deception, in order to be Ed Exley. If you cannot lie, you cannot discover liars either. The fact that the consummate liar, as you put it, Jack Vincennes, whose entire life is a travesty, is the one who figures it out first, is not an accident. And indeed, he is the one warned by Dudley Smith, the great malevolent James Cromwell, that he shouldn't start trying to do good because he doesn't have the habits. And that turns out to be entirely true. Doing good is incredibly risky. Yes. Yes, that's right. How fabulous that it is Dudley Smith who tells him this. Let's take a look at that character and at James Cromwell's performance. I very clearly remember the first time I saw L.A. Confidential back in 1997. I did not see it coming that there would be a reveal in which Dudley Smith pulled out a pistol and shot Kevin Spacey in the heart. I didn't see him as equivocal in that way. I mean, I sort of took it for granted that he was in the world of the Los Angeles police, but it didn't occur to me that he was Mr. Big, the ultimate bad guy of the situation. That, too, is quite marvelous acting because you buy it on both sides of the reveal. At first, Dudley Smith seems like a rather avuncular character, a bit phony Irish, deliberately so. People who know accents are always talking about how he has a bad Irish accent. Well, he's supposed to, (laughs) you know. We're supposed to read him as somebody who isn't quite what he seems to be. And he wants credit. He wants to get ahead within his system. He accepts that he has to be a political cop. 
But I confess to you, it did not occur to me that he was a monster. And once he reveals himself as a monster, you buy him on both sides of the divide. Everything that he was in the first half of the film is consistent with what he is in the second half of the film. A truly superior actor was needed in order to embody those traits. But of course, the real triumph is to have put traits on the page in the first place. Dudley Smith's a great character. You have no trouble believing that he does what he does and would do what he did. And once you've got something like that on the page, the trick is, of course, to find somebody who can play it. But you're two-thirds, three-quarters of the way there if you've written it that well. And it ties into our whole view of this film, whose principal characters are seeking to extricate themselves from the morass that is the Los Angeles Police Department. And Dudley Smith is the embodiment of that morass. He loves it. He doesn't think there's any other world to live in. He's totally fine with it. He intends to use it to make himself a rich and powerful man. And everybody around him is at his mercy. We find eventually that he is blackmailing the district attorney who is a closeted homosexual. We find that he's in cahoots with all the bad guys in this film. Which brings us to the other very nifty bad guy in this film, Pierce Patchett, played beautifully by David Strathairn, one of our truly great character actors. How is it that Danny DeVito describes him as a real, ultimate strange-o, something like that? He is a person who has become quite rich through investments, but who also runs a prostitution ring where the prostitutes have been subjected to plastic surgery to make them look like movie stars. We see him fronting one of his orgies. We see the movie star prostitutes. And I only just noticed this time after having watched this film for 20 years that one of his prostitutes is Shirley Temple. What a horrific touch. What an appalling touch. But it's all done with small, accurate details. And where does Pierce Patchett live? He lives in the purest, most modern house in Los Angeles, a real-life house designed by the architect Richard Neutra. The irony is wonderful that this house is known as the Health House because of the way it takes the sun and the landscape. And this man, who is corrupt beyond belief in every scintilla of his being, lives in this incredibly pure and austere interior and has his orgies there. Powerful symbolism is being shown to us here. Immensely yes. powerful symbolism. And of course we are used to the movies showing modernist architecture as the dwellings of evil. Yes. It's just the way the movies are made. Pops up all and, the time. <laughs> and this man comes up again and again in the story, more or less in the way Dudley Smith does. It's very important to realize how if you want to characterize a spider in the center of the web, he should only appear now and then to suggest more than to say or to show anything so that the terror mounts, the suspicion mounts what this guy does to women, then you learn that he's in business and he's involved in blackmailing local politicians to build the freeway. And you begin to see what it means to think about who you know, to think about the secrets, which probably are exactly as corrupt in Los Angeles today. There's way more money thrown around for construction now. People are not angels now. And indeed, there must be the same secrets happening again and again. It is not possible to have a big city, future of America, without there being a lot of money and therefore influence peddled. And when that happens, there will be great exploiters. Pierce Patchett is a kind of Jeffrey Epstein. And Good choice. Good choice also there, yes. ends up with a suspicious suicide. Mm. Because there are certain things that cannot get out. Indeed, this sort of wickedness is part of human nature. 
but it is part of the insight of the movie to show you this is tied up with the problem of glamour. Our wicked characters say things like there's always somebody else coming on the bus trying to make it in LA. Everybody is seduced by the beautiful and then they end up in complete ugliness and some of them dead. There's this shocking scene where a mother called in by the cops to go to the coroner and make an identification can't recognize her daughter who is dead because she's had plastic surgery and you think, oh my lord, what sort of world is this? All of which is laid out in the opening narration of the film. Danny DeVito, the editor of Hush Hush, is the off-camera narrator. We see a montage of period film clips of Los Angeles during the day. He's talking about what a wonderful, marvelous place it is to live, move there, you'll be happy. You might become a movie star, or at least you could see one, as long as you're willing to put up with the way things are. And in the background, the music that is playing is Johnny Mercer's record of Accentuate the Positive. We are now getting to the score, which is a combination of a truly outstanding original score by Jerry Goldsmith, who, of course, scored Chinatown as well. And the brilliant use of offstage commentative recordings played on jukeboxes, played on the television, played on the soundtrack from the period, which all have ironic things to say about the unfolding action, the most obvious of which is accentuate the positive. Usually you don't get film scores in which recorded music and original music are interwoven with that kind of skill. Generally speaking, the composer wants to do the job himself and usually he's allowed to do it. But here, that period music is really a big part of the effect. Nevertheless, Jerry Goldsmith's score is so powerful, so distinctive. It gets out in front of all of this and helps to set the tone. It is rather Chinatown-like. It has a particularly important lead trumpet part, for example. It is what shows us both the rage of the film. The first big music cue in this film is the percussion-heavy score that plays underneath the melee at the police station, where the policemen in a wild rage are beating up suspects who they thought had killed a policeman. That's really where the music starts to come in. But mostly what the score in L.A. Confidential is used for is to establish the humanity of the characters themselves, to tell us that they have immortal longings, that they want to have something better than this. This side of the score builds to the end of it, the final cue, which goes to the fade out, in which we see Bud White and Lynn Bracken driving off into the distance with truly beautiful music played in the background. Goldsmith is, I rank him alongside Bernard Herrmann and Nicholas Rosham and Elmer Bernstein as one of the supreme composers of full orchestra film scores. I don't know whether L.A. Confidential is one of his five best. <laughs> He's got quite a track record. But it's one of the most effective pieces of scoring that he did. It's not noticeable in the way that Chinatown is because there's not a main title cue. That is accentuate the positive. The score doesn't start until the tremendous percussive explosion of the nightmare Malay in the basement of the police station. But if you're listening for that score, if you're watching LA Confidential and you're asking yourself, how is music being used in this film? You will notice the score and you will also notice the way the recordings are used. I've been watching a lot of pre-code films in the last months. Uh, I love pre-code tough guy films, crime films. They're typically not scored at all because film scoring was not established as a discipline in the early 30s. And they were shot quickly on comparatively low budgets. And all you had was music to lead in the film and lead out the film. 
You can make a film without a score. You can make a wonderful film without a score. You can make a wonderful film using only recorded music, as Martin Scorsese likes to do, and, and most famously does with Goodfellas. But there is something that a purpose-ridden symphonic score can contribute to a film drama that you just can't get in any other way, that pulls it up to a higher level of emotional expression. And that's something that Goldsmith delivers here and deserves an enormous amount of credit for having done so. Yeah. Watching it again, he put me in mind of Max Steiner's score for noirs, for The Big Sleep or mm. Dark Passage or these sorts of movies. And I thought this is the clearest evidence of the old Hollywood magic, still practiced as an art, updated, of course, for the 90s, but recognizably what it had been in the noirs of the 40s, the lavish ones that had, of course, the cast, the director and the production money to work with. And it helps you see that these characters are deeply dissatisfied and that they are all looking for some crisis to happen so that they can get away from what's been happening to them. Nobody is satisfied in this story, but nobody knows how to get out of the trap that they have gotten themselves into. Until a woman shows them, which now brings us full circle to Lynn Bracken. As we said earlier, in classic noir, the woman is the temptress who leads the man off the path of virtue, thus causing either his destruction or hers or both of them. The inverse happens in L.A. Confidential. Lynn Bracken is a prostitute, a completely corrupt figure. We think at first, uh, you know, she appears to have been allowed to subject herself to plastic surgery so that she'll look more like a movie star. The front part of the home in which she entertains her clients is clearly a boudoir-like place that has been directed for the purpose of prostitution. But then she falls in love with Bud White, and she admits him to the part of the house in which she really lives. An amazing touch of decor. Another example of what rich film design can do to teach you what's happening with characters. Because it's just an ordinary bedroom with souvenir pillows. On the nightstand, you have to really look to notice this detail. What is like I'm reading? She's reading a book by MFK Fisher. It's not emphasized. She doesn't shove it in your face. It's just there for you to see, for you to realize that when she goes on camera, so to speak, to be a prostitute, it is not the real her. And meeting the real her, Bud White's inchoate desire to be better, to be a better man, to be a better policeman, is given focus when he discovers that Lynn Bracken is not what she seems to be. And he is put on the path of redemption instead of destruction by his encounter with her. In a sense, they all are. Each one of these three principal characters is following a different path toward redemption. But it's really Lynn Bracken who's the trigger, so to speak, for this action. Because if Bud White hadn't decided that he wanted to be a different kind of person and figured out what that different kind of person might be, none of the rest of it would happen. Kevin Spacey's character has to go to him for help in order to disentangle this mess. And of course, that leads to his death because appropriately, he is the most profoundly compromised of the characters. Somebody's got to go. I mean, this wouldn't be a serious film if one of the three principal characters didn't die as a result of what happens. And um, it's certainly very Hollywoodish that it should be the most compromised one that goes. Ed Exley, who himself falls for the false Lynn Bracken, nevertheless is caused to realize that his path is not acceptable to him. That if he wants to live a life worthy of his father, who died in the line of duty, he can't play the game. 
he's got to break free of the gang. The gang has made him a successful policeman. It's gotten him promotion. It's gotten him news coverage. It's put him on a path that all the other characters acknowledge is going to lead to tremendous success on the force. Bud White asks him, are you willing to tear all this down? And he says, with a wrecking ball, because he realizes that he can't live like that. And so these two characters, who in the first part of the film hate each other, Bud White is prepared to kill Ed Excellent, end up being, I hate to use this phrase, but it's the right one, they end up being best buddies. They're the ones who pull themselves out of corruption by forging a friendship out of the wreckage of what has gone before. This is the aspect of the film, the only aspect of LA Confidential, that brings a little phony for me. The fact that these two guys get away in the way that they do, that is old Hollywood. That's something that wouldn't have happened in a film noir. It's something that we require because of the arc of the film toward redemption. Somebody needs to get out all right, or we're going to feel disappointed. Nevertheless, I can't help but feel that there is something fundamentally dishonest about it. I mean, L.I. Confidential satisfies us in a different way. It's the most old-fashioned thing about the film, that it has a happy ending. These guys wouldn't have a happy ending in life, and James Elroy doesn't give them one. But they are given one in order to round the film off, and we accept it within the world of the film. I might add that we're helped to accept it by Jerry Goldsmith's score, which puts that note of finality on it and says, all right, it's going to be okay for these guys. It'll definitely be okay for Bud White because he's walking away. We are allowed to wonder whether Ed Exley will be able to maintain his honesty working within the system. But there's no great emphasis placed on that. They get away clean. The wonderful thing about Chinatown is that nobody gets away clean. That's what makes it resonate. That's what puts it truly in line with the classic noir idea. In a corrupt world, everybody is hopelessly corrupt. It is essentially a tragic way of making art. L.A. Confidential, whatever else it is, is, except for Jack Vincennes, not a tragedy. In a sense, Jack Vincennes actually gets away clean, even though he's shot dead. His dying act is to make it possible for the other characters to redeem themselves. That is also very old-fashioned Hollywood. I'm not saying that I would prefer L.A. Confidential to have an unhappy ending. <laughs> it's just a wonderful movie as it is. But we do have to be honest about it. A switch is being pulled on us at the end of this movie, and I'm not quite sure that it convinces. You're right. Part of it is knowing when to end. We don't need to know what's going to happen to Ed Exley in what is still going to be a corrupt L.A. police force. But part of it is indeed this sort of send them to heaven where Kim Basinger and Russell Crowe go off to the real America, to the heartland, yeah. to the purity of the desert, to the small town, away from all the glamour and corruption. With the souvenir pillows, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it seems like it's just a nice way of saying they're going to heaven. But Russell Crowe should be Guy Pierce's father, not his best buddy. He is the father Ed actually lost. Oh, I like that. That's very good. The old yes. style cop, like we see old style cops like Stensland played wonderfully and even Buzz Meeks. But those are corrupt, wicked people. Whereas with Bud White, you see that he was part of that force, but he never got bribed. He never got into the violence for the sake of violence. He is a man with the moral conscience, the kind of guy who will get himself killed just like Exley's dad got himself killed because he could never say no to the job, to duty, because of the moral intensity with which he lives out this drama, the wickedness that happens in LA. 
He cannot turn a blind eye, he cannot reconcile himself to it. One expected indeed that he would die at the end, which they almost did, but you know, they had to bring him back for the great finale, which was a mistake. I understand that the film has to be a happy ending because it speaks in part about the change in LA. Those blue-collar cops are out. The future is going to be the pointy-head college boy cops like Ed Exley. There's no way around that, and of course now we all know it. In the modern America, there's college. But the happy end doesn't require quite so much of the sweet stuff. Doesn't require this Russell Crowe Kim Basinger romance that will soften our hearts and maybe break our hearts a little. That's something of a mistake in a movie that is otherwise quite sophisticated. Lynn Bracken helps Bud White to find his courage and pursue the truth about the murders he knows were wrongly solved. In a movie that's all about what's hiding behind the headlines, what's hiding in the basement of places, what is not there for you to see and you know it's going to be dark and dangerous. This woman, Angelic as she is, encourages him to go find out. She understands the risks, but she loves him, and you can see why, in a way, they fit in that happy ending. Bud White does need a woman to protect. He's got to deal with his own drama, not the drama of the city, and she really does need a moral man, because everybody in her life, even if they're not abusing her, they're treating her like she's corrupt. Only somebody with this sort of moral intensity could look at her as she says, you see me, Lynn Bracken, not Veronica Lake. Because of the moral intensity that describes him, Bud White is not the kind of guy who's chasing after this fantasy. Which is, you know, the fantasy of Hollywood. What's the difference between pornography and Hollywood? Well, it's not always obvious, and it does involve a lot of plastic surgery either way. No, it doesn't. You don't even have to have CGI. Uh, You alluded to this. Let's not quit before talking about it. This film, the casting is quite rich, not just in the principal actors, but all the way down the line. That is an old-fashioned aspect of the film that is to be much appreciated. In the old days in the studio system, you had access to an extremely deep layer of talent. You could cast secondary and tertiary roles with tremendous vividness. It's harder to do now. You have to go out of your way to do it. And yet, L.A. Confidential is a movie in which absolutely everybody makes an impression. You mentioned Dick Stensland, the partner who's played by Grant Beckel. We notice him. We think about him. He's exactly right. The coroner, that guy behind the counter at the liquor store, I mean, just everyone that we run across, they seem real, partly because they're such good actors, but also because they have been given small but beautifully written parts that allow them to display their talents in a minute, in 30 seconds, and then get off having done what they need to do. Those mystery roles are also uh, cast very richly. Alice Lowe, the closeted district attorney, is played by Ron Rifkin. And you couldn't play that role any better. For one thing, he gives absolutely no hint of being closeted. Brilliant choice. Not like Kevin Spacey, who's telegraphing that there's something equivocal about his part. Now, this guy is a guy who is corrupt, who is being blackmailed, and yet who doesn't signal at all that he's anything other than what he appears to be a hard-boiled bureaucrat until he's hung out the window by his ankles and then reduced to curling up into a fetal position and confessing everything. It's not much of a part, but when you cast somebody like that in it, everything about it lands. And I guess in a way, that's Danny DeVito's part, too. He doesn't have a very big role in this film. At the time the film was made, he was probably the best-known personality in the film. 
you could say, as people have said, that this is a flaw in L.A. Confidential, that the fact that he is well-known in that way, both physically and vocally distinctive, gets out in front of the part and prevents the creation of true illusion. On the other hand, I think it's kind of appropriate. He's being used as an off-screen narrator. He is quite marvelous at telling this totally cynical account of what Los Angeles pretends to be and what it actually is. I don't have any trouble at all buying him as the editor of Hush Hush. I don't have a problem with his being slightly outside the frame in this one role. Danny DeVito, unlike these other actors, is a known quantity. You know exactly what you're getting when you cast him. And if you're smart, you cast him because you want that quantity and you know how to use it well. It's used very well in this film. And it isn't a lot. That's quite a small part. Played with such cynicism and pungency that it is memorable. Yes, and precisely it's because he's famous, he's such a perfect introduction. It's like you're at a theme park, look yeah. at the wonderful world of LA. But then he's a character and you see, oh yeah, I completely get that salesman sleaze. And then when near the end of the movie, it turns out that he's in on the con, and then that he is now being conned himself, indeed murdered, you see, wow. Now that gives you a payoff yes. for all this bright and cheery cynicism always coming out on top always knowing where your bread is buttered and getting it. And then, wow, it is indeed very well executed. And we should say that the explosion of violence, and especially at the end, is well earned and it reveals that you're not going to be able to talk your way out of evil. You're not going to be able to reason with people. Right. And therefore, there's a reason to keep looking to that dark past with all its mysteries and all the corruptions. There's never going to be a time when we'll just be able to talk our way past differences and nobody will do anything wicked and therefore there will be no need for violence. On the contrary, you will have to have people who are willing to risk their lives. You know, one of the necessary things, like Lynn Bracken, this angelic character, is the positive influence behind these characters. Even the fact that she tells Ed Exley how much she truly admires Bud White. Mm -hmm. That motivates this young man to realize that, yeah, that's a real guy. It's not a reputation. It's not some kind of fame. It's not Hollywood. This woman really believes that this moral man is real. That's important. But there's a negative cause. These people are all involved in violence mid-movie. They have to kill people and it's justifiable, but it's you're killing people. Now you have blood on your hands and it eats at them that maybe it wasn't right. Maybe it's not what the press said. Maybe it's not what the police said. Maybe this beautiful story of saving victims and solving crimes is not true. And there you see the moral pressure violence puts on people. And it keeps eating at them up until they have to do something about it, including risking their own lives. Yes. Having walked away from that bloodbath, they're going to have to risk it all over again. And indeed, they all do, knowing what it is. So you see, there's a kind of nobility, precisely because in a way they're corrupt, well, in various ways. And they all know what they're doing. And they all know they could do something else and get away with it. Yes, without the shedding of blood, there's no redemption of sin. Is, is the climactic premise of this film. Everything points toward death. There is no way to start the marker over. There's no way to change things at all without having Dudley be killed. Otherwise, he won't go away. He will be there forever. That's as old-fashioned as the happy ending on its own, essentially popular terms, because the good guys kill the bad guy, and then at least two of them get what they want. If you require tragedy to be satisfied by a film, you won't be satisfied by this one because that's not the kind of movie it is. 
it accepts the illusion that in its opening scene it sets forth as illusional. But it's meant to make us feel good. We're meant to go away from this movie feeling maybe the right word is hope. There I think that is exactly the right word. You're right. This means we can't get all of the noir in noir. You can only get so far before you hit hopelessness. But indeed, you know, we could not live our lives without hope. No. We could not get up in the morning if we believe the, the bad guys get away with everything. Obviously, there's more evil than we dare admit. There's more evil than people will dare talk about publicly or, or the press reveal or the police deal with or the politicians fix. But it's not all wickedness. It's not all injustice. And that's what makes this sort of popular story just the right balance for America. That's right. If everything is corrupt and there's nothing to be done about it, why be good? That is, after all, a very fundamental question. It's the Dostoevsky question. If there is no God, then everything is permitted, even cannibalism. Well, that's clearly what Dudley thinks. Yep. And these other guys, although they don't avow any kind of religious view, they nevertheless believe that there is right and that it's worth trying to do right and be right. We need such moral tales in this world in order to be moral ourselves. Otherwise, we do all end up being cannibals. Maybe that's one of the good things that Hollywood has done for us in the past and sometimes does for us in the future is that it enacts these moral tales that show us why it's worth trying to do the right thing. If so, that's part of what makes noir such a dangerous and you almost might say titillating genre because with noir, you are told that it doesn't matter. You're going to end up dead anyway. It's an existentialist view. I mean, you have to do right for its own sake rather than because you're going to get anything out of it. The world doesn't require it. I think that's part of the seductive power of real noir, tragic noir as a genre, the way that it connects up with great art, even though it is itself not always, not truly great art. But it partakes of this feeling, the Shakespearean idea that no matter how you try to redeem yourself, no matter what you discover about yourself, you're going to end up like King Lear. You're going to end up like Hamlet. There's going to be a pile of corpses on the stage at the end, and it's called a cemetery, and we all go there. Yes, and that's very much true. And indeed, we need noir, but need not indulge it too much. No. And it's uh, since we have the chance to talk about the varieties, we get to see we always put up a noble man or noble men for protagonists. Can they live with it? Or do we sometimes expect too much of them? Do they believe too much in themselves and it leads them to destruction? It is, of course, a very important question that we always have to face. In order to believe in the possibility of heroic conduct, we must have heroes. And that's John Ford's great theme in his Westerns. And that's what L.A. Confidential is about. It's about the possibility of heroism in a radically corrupt and degraded world. And I'm good with that. Yes, indeed. I think that's a great note to end on. I too. Thank you so much for joining me. It was, as always, a pleasure. And we can return to Shadow of a Doubt next time, yes. a film which moves in a very different direction from this one. Yes, indeed. We'll have some fun with that. Exactly. All the best until then, and let's talk soon. Mm -hmm.